6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. And that you say, well, I thought Jesus wept was the shortest book in the... Uh, I got some nods there already. In John 11.35, it turns out those are actually three Greek words... These here, it's only two Greek words that are even smaller. So you get into a little uh, debate with some of your Bible study, you know, uh, uh, weekly Bible, get, uh, Bible study groups. First Thessalonians 5.16 is the shortest verse in the Greek in the Bible, contrary to the common wisdom. Anyway, rejoicing, living in the will of God, trusting the Lord. It's that simple. And it's a contrast, though, with the sin of murmuring. Boy, you read Exodus, Deuteronomy. Numbers, all those that are just full of murmuring, 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 murmuring. We had someone come out, a, a tradesman came out to fix a repair at our house. And he did an acceptable job, but all the time he was there, he's grumbling. Sort of wondered, gee, you know, if something goes wrong, are we going to hire him back? He did an acceptable job, didn't do anything wrong with the job. But sure, it'd be nice to have somebody come that isn't grumbling from start to finish. You know what I'm saying? Murmuring. Interesting. Remember the letter to Ephesus, the first of the seven letters, seven churches. They lost their first love. They were fabulous about doctrine. They tried them that say they're apostles and are not. Doctrinally, they were right on. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says. That you've lost your first love, that joy. And and that's what what David prays in in his psalm of repentance about Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Boy. We need to cling to that. Word evermore there is an interesting word. It's a favorite of Paul. He uses it many times, but I, was quite no, I couldn't help but notice it's 27 times in Paul's letters and 15 other times in the New Testament. 15 plus 27 is 42. It's a multiple of seven exactly. And remembering, that's echoes of Panin, if you will. I think that's kind of interesting. Paradox of joy amid suffering is a major theme all through the scriptures. The Philippian letter is a decant on this very theme. Christian sadness, depression, is always a mistrust of God's power, providence, and forgiveness. If you're depressed or sadness, that's a form of denying God's attributes. Do you trust Him? Pray without ceasing. Wow. Pray without ceasing. Now we're in the 13th command, by the way, for those that have been counting. It's an adverb, constantly recurring, maintaining times of prayer. Daniel prayed three times a day, and he was a very busy administrator. Third ruler in the kingdom for a while. Notice that Paul, in his letters, constantly is interjecting prayers. Each congregation should accept the responsibility to engage in serious intercession. That's what Dan called us for this, when we started here this evening, to intercede for the KI students that are meeting this very night across the country. Prayers are not limited by time or place. If you're not in the right place to pray, you are not in the right place. In everything, give thanks. 
It doesn't say for everything. It says in everything, give thanks. Big difference, isn't it? Think about it a moment. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. That's in, not for. In whatever you're in, give thanks. God has a purpose in it. If it seems adverse to you, pray that your lessons not be wasted. God's training you for some reason. And there's no simpler recipe for a Christian, for a happier Christian experience than to, in everything, give thanks. Not just when you feel like it. This may be what my wife likes to call a contrary to feeling choice. She's written a trilogy of books on this subject, the, the mainstay being the way of agape. Faith choices. You choose by what, the, what you know God's will is, not what you feel like. In the confidence that God will realign your feelings to conform to that feeling. But you make the choice first. Guided by the Holy Spirit. Guided, guided by the Word of God. All of us quote Romans 8.38. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. For everybody know, no, 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 for them that love God and who are the called according to His purpose. Ooh, what are the most important words in that entire verse? The first three. We don't suspect, we don't hope, we don't believe. No, we know that all things work together for good. Whole different flavor, isn't it? Embrace it. Quench not the Spirit. Well, we're now to command number 15. The word there for quench is actually the word for putting out a fire, extinguishing. Do not put, the spirits, put out the Spirit's fire is what it's saying. Quenching is just saying no to God, God the Holy Spirit. Imagine it as a flame, tongues of fire as it was in Acts 2. John the Baptist spoke of him baptizing by fire, remember? In Ephesians 4.30, Paul tells us, grieve not the Holy Spirit. I love that because it tells you two things. It tells you that the Holy Spirit isn't a force. It's a person. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. We all know the the Son loves us. He went to the cross for us. We know the Father loves us because He allowed His Son, can you imagine, to go to the cross for us and all that entailed. But the Holy Spirit loves us too. We don't think of it that way sometimes because we think of him impersonally somehow because he never testifies of himself. And yet, he's a person. We're told not to grieve him. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. The Holy Spirit is there to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, to rebuke us, to show us the way to unfold the Scriptures, to give us joy and peace and love and to transform our lives. Wow! And our character and our experience. Our lives, our character, and our experience. He's got a big job. Despise not prophesying. This is command number 16. Be ready to recognize the messages of God when His servants speak. And we're going to apply that in the next verse forthcoming. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. This is the, the emblem of the firefighters for Christ. They already took that, so that's why I took Acts 17.11 for our emblem, if you will. Same idea, really. Prove all things. Just like the Bereans, we use Acts 17.11. There are others that use 1 Thessalonians 5.21. And this is a favorite of Paul anyway. He says it 17 times of the 23 occurrences in the New Testament. Prove all things, and then also, once you've done that, hold fast to that which is good. That's part two of that, in a sense. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. And that doesn't denote assemblage opposed to reality. It's a sort kind of, any kind of species, any kind. 
And the very God of peace sanctify you. And oh, here is a dandy verse. This verse is pregnant with insights. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the word sanctify, you're pretty familiar with, set apart. That's all it means to be set apart, to consecrate. It does not mean the absolute eradication of all inbred sin. Don't get carried away with some of those misunderstandings. And uh, there's not one scripture that treats it from that standpoint. We're going to deal with this topic in depth when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So I won't spend too much time on it here. But Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. How do you get sanctified holy? You read your scriptures holy. Have you read your Bible holy, completely, thoroughly? That's the command here, believe it or not. But let's get to something else here. He speaks of spirit, soul, and body. Now many of you probably heard of the trinity or the triune nature of our architecture. And it may surprise you, no, that isn't just Sunday school theology. No, that is scriptural. Spirit, soul, and body. The triune architecture of man. We're going to talk a little bit about that here. Paul differentiates between zoikos, which is soulish, and pneumatikos, which is spiritual. They're two different things. They're both beyond physical, but they're still distinctive. So we'll get into that here in a minute. The spirit. In the Greek, it's called pneuma, which it means pneumatics. It means air, like breath or wind or air pressure, pneumatics. Pneuma is the Greek word for air or breath. The Hebrew equivalent term is ruach, which means wind. Air, breath, the same word in the Hebrew or the Greek, in a sense. The spirit is that which knows. It's the spirit that knows. Don't confuse that with the brain. That's the mind, not the same thing. Spirit and soul are divisible. They're not the same thing. The spirit and the soul are not the same thing, but there's only one way you can tell the difference, and that's from the Word of God. And we're going to take a look at that. We have the spirit, the soul, and the body, the three elements that make up our architecture, you and me. The spirit, the soul, can only be discerned by the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that of the joints and marrow, and it is, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Wow. So they can be discerned, but only by the Word of God. And that's one of the reasons that psychology is doomed to frustration. Because they can't deal deeper than the self, the soul. They can only deal with symptoms, which are primarily guilt, they can't get at the cause of that guilt, which is sin. They have no remedy for sin. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray to God your whole spirit and soul. Let's talk about the soul a bit. The word in the Hebrew is nephesh, psyche in the Greek, and that's where we get the word psychology from, of course. And it's all used all through the Old Testament uh, in, the, in the nephesh sense. The soul is the seat of the affections, the desires, the emotions, and of the active will of the self would be probably the term that a contemporary psychologist might use. The word body is, is soma, but it's this, it's, if, if the spirit is the God consciousness and the soul is the self-consciousness, 
The body is the world contact. That's our contact with the world. Our sense of physical reality comes through the body, body senses. So we have the spirit, the soul, and the body. The spirit should be ruling the soul, and the soul should be ruling the body. When we get that upside down, where most of us are, it gets messed up. Our soul is busy trying to feed the appetites of the body, and our spirit is tag-along behind all the rest. It's upside down, if you will. There are some that would argue that physical death is the separation of the body from the soul. And spiritual death would be the separation of the soul and the spirit. And that's what causes some people to suggest that he that is born twice dies once. He that's born once dies twice. The unbeliever will, is only born once and he'll die twice by suffering both those deaths. If you are in Christ, your, the spiritual death has been paid for on a cross 2,000 years ago. So if you're born twice by being born again, you only die once, and that's to give you a new body. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your personal architecture. Seven times in the Scripture, it declares that ye are the temple of God. Now that might be just a broad brush idiomatic use, that's possible. But when you see it seven times, that's something else again. Paul uses it in 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Hebrews, and now Peter also uses it twice. It's my belief, and this was discovered by my wife, and as she got into this, it's been the cornerstone of a trilogy of books on the subject that had gone into their 15th or 20th printing, I've lost track. But it was her discovery of this, and as the more I got into it, I think she's right on the money here in terms of perception. We use the term heart, soul, spirit, and mind loosely. I love you with all my heart. What do I really mean? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty fuzzy. And we use these terms very sloppily. She spent 20, over 20 years finding each word in the Greek and the Hebrew, every occurrence in the entire Bible, and from that inferring what they really refer to. And there were a lot of surprises that came out of that study. From, let's talk a little bit about system architecture of a computer, if I may. And down on the side of the computer, there's probably a master software kernel, a proprietary set of equations, whatever, that you wrap some system resources around, and that's the core of your computer software. Now, you put that software inside an application interface so it has a certain expected appearance to the person that's going to be using it. You take that application interface, and it might like Word, Excel, or PowerPoint, whatever, and you put that inside a user interface, and th- that can be different kinds, like XP or Vista or one of those. And the user interface is then put inside a hardware environment, and that also can be any, of, any manufacturer. The great breakthrough that occurred in the 50s was when computer software became machine independent by a number of techniques so that you could write programs that would run on any computer if they had the right facilitations. But I want you to be sensitive to this architecture, how you have, it's a series of concentric uh, circles, so to speak. See, now the problem that I have right now tonight, as I look out on you, I can't see you. I can see the hardware that your software is residing in. The real you is software, not hardware. And it's resident in a hardware environment. Software has no mass. Some of our hardware environments 
have too much mass. I understand that. Okay. But let's talk a little about it. See, the, when I speak of a computer hardware, I'm talking about microcircuits, memory, wires, all those parts. That's the physical hardware. And if I lay my computer in front of you, can you tell me anything about its behavior? No, you have to know what software it's running, you see. Because inside that, the hardware is simply a residence for software. If I tell you what kind of user interface, internal interface, what kind of machine language, algorithm, whatever, I can talk about the software, but that has no physical reality. It's information. It has no substance. Well, when I look at you, you see, I see your physical body, your flesh, your bones, your circulatory system, whatever, okay? That's analogous to the hardware. When I talk about you, the real you, whether I call it soul or spirit or mind or your thoughts, whatever, whatever vocabulary, I mean, that's software, not hardware. Now, why, does it, why am I making this distinction? Because it's a colorful comparison? No, there's some very profound lessons to be drawn from this. I, I have inserted something here just to, you, you, you think of man as a hardware, it's got an on and off switch. You take woman, it's a little more complicated. <laughs> But don't despair, because some people have suggested there is a remote control that you might want to try. It tells you where the thermostat should be up, the toilet seat down, romance turned up. One that you can mute the snores and the, sport and the sports and so forth. It's got a number of commands on there that they can just push on. So we're, anyway, getting more serious, getting back to that. I, I couldn't resist sticking those in the presentation. But there's something very interesting here you need to understand about computers. A computer is defined as an infinite state machine. It has an infin it, it, its mathematical existence is one of having an infinite number of states. So a programmable computer is an infinite state machine because it can alter its own states. The miracle of the von Neumann architecture is that the computer can not only operate on data, it can operate on programs and it can change its own programs. An infinite state machine defies external determination of its internal architecture. You can't, if I gave you a computer with software in it, you try to figure out how that software works, it's almost, not quite, but it's almost impossible to infer the architecture of the software from the external behavior of the computer. And the reason I make that point, see, that's the reason we have a software industry. See, you can go to the store and buy some software and use it all you like, but you can't get in there and change it, you see. Normally, there's exceptions, but that's, that's, the, the, that's, the, that's what makes the industry possible. The frustration of psychology is that it is attempting to determine the internal architecture of man from its external behavior. That's mathematically impossible. It's a contradiction if you understand the information science is involved. So psychology is left only with symptoms to deal with, usually guilt of some, in some form. It has no ability to deal with the root cause of that guilt, which is sin. Psychology has no solution for sin. So the math, something else I want you to understand, see the real you is software, not hardware. What else does that mean? If I take a little diskette and I put it on a postal scale, and I'm talking about a blank diskette, and I weigh it, it'll weigh about seven-tenths of an ounce. Now if I spend hundreds of dollars and load that diskette with a million bytes of software, it will still weigh how much? Seven-tenths of an ounce. The point I'm making is the software is information that has no weight of its own. That software I can actually transmit through the air 
Software has no mass. I want you to understand what that means. It is massless. The real you has no mass. The real you is software, not hardware. Software has no mass, therefore it can pass through the airwaves, so can you. It is not restricted to our physical time dimension. Time is a physical property. It's a physical dimension. Something that has no mass has no time. You are eternal because you're software, not hardware. You are eternal whether you're saved or not. You're still software. You're still outside time. The question you don't know the answer to is whether you're saved, where are you going to spend it? If you're perfect, you can, stay, be, you can remain in the presence of the Creator Himself. If you're not perfect, well, you'll be separated forever. Forever is a long time. Unless you're in Christ, of course. Let's continue here anyway with the First Thessalonians wrap up here. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. What he starts, he finishes. We know from many places. There's a postscript now. We're going to have three further exhortations and then a final benediction. And Paul believed in the efficacy of prayer. It dominates all his writings. He opens his letters by assuring them that he is praising for them. And he closes his letter urging prayer on his own behalf. He took it seriously. He says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the, pr- the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. So there is command number 20, 21, and 22 to read this epistle. By the way, I've just obeyed it because we've just read this epistle together, all right? The first letter inaugurated a new practice in the churches for them all to read the letter. It wasn't just written to the pastor. It was intended to be circulated. He felt so strongly about the importance of the letter to all, the letter was a substitute for his personal visit. He tried to deal with any disappointment or presumed neglect. He sought to guard against garbled teaching. He had a primary intention, one of comfort to all. That was his motivation from from the first verse of this letter to the end. Troublemakers might refuse to read or pay heed to this. Elders might suppress parts of the contents. That's why he wanted it read aloud, so they all put them all, as we would say, on the same sheet of music, so to speak. And then we have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Do you know what that is, by the way? Many people don't know what that is. Do you know that's a trademark? Do you know that Paul is the only writer that uses the word grace? Peter uses it once, but not in the salutation. This salutation is Paul's trademark. That's why he signs the epistle to the Hebrews with this so they will know it's from him. Interesting enough. That's his unique trademark, by the way. Okay, so we've done 1 Thessalonians. We've been through through five chapters. For next time, I want you to read 3 Thessalonians. Okay? How many have a copy of 3 Thessalonians, whether you you know it or not? You all have, absolutely. You see, I call it 3 Thessalonians facetiously because the second letter of Paul was a forgery. And he is writing his letter, what we call 2 Thessalonians, as a rebuttal to a forgery that's been circulated. So what I want you to do for next time, it's only three chapters, it's a short epistle, and it's the middle chapter that's the pivotal one, that's the tough one, don't worry too much about that, we'll deal with it in detail. But you might read it through, because I want you to figure out 
what it is that's bothering them. They apparently have a, 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 something circulating that they think is from Paul and it's getting them all upset. And he's writing the second letter to respond to that confusion. So you won't really understand 2 Thessalonians, as we call it, without understanding what was it about the forgery that was, got them all stirred up. And as you read that, you'll see uh, that you, why are you so upset? There's a letter as if from us. And he, he, chid, he chides them for having lost their moorings. And then he reminds them of things that he taught when he was there with them when he first founded the church. It happens that he touches on some subjects that are very, very confusing to many and very controversial. So that's, that most, of the, most of that is in the second chapter. So we'll be unpacking that very carefully because it's very pivotal to your uh, understanding of eschatology. The Thessalonian epistles, first and second, are all about this. The first Thessalonians letter deals, gives us the, one of the two primary harpazo passages. First Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 are the two pivotal passages and all that. In 2 Thessalonians, he's going to deal with the great tribulation, the order of events, and the, the lurking question that we're going to be concerned with, does the church go through the tribulation or not? And, and what are the order of events of the final thing? And, and, and fortunately, he deals with that. But it's not obvious because of the complexity of the Greek. So we'll go through all that as we undertake the next couple of sessions. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for being among us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and his tireless efforts to help us to grow and grace the knowledge of our coming King. We thank you, Father, for these passages from Paul. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to bathe in them. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate those things that we need to hear, that we need to apply to our lives as we anticipate the moment-by-moment eminence of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we commit ourselves. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.